It's about a man who was stranded on a desert island for many, many years. When finally his ship came in, a ship came by and spotted him and rescued him. And as the boat, as the boat was pulling away from the island, the captain turned to the man and said, Hey, I thought you lived on the island by yourself. Why the three huts? And the man said, well, that's my house and that was my church. And the captain said, well, what, what was the third hut? Oh, that was my old church. <laughs> uh, what makes a joke funny is that there's some measure of truth in the joke. And the truth here is that people have been involved in some kind of church division. And for many of those people who've been involved in a church division, it really wasn't funny. It turned out to be something uh, very painful. You could actually be here uh, with a very negative impression of the church because of some painful division that has happened in a church that you were previously involved with. Even if you haven't been personally involved with disunity within a church or division, you're at least aware of the challenge of Christian unity. A church historian, Kenneth Scott Lauderette, makes this observation in his book on Christian history. No other religion has so high an ideal of an inclusive community of love, yet... No other religion has had as many divisions and as many bitter controversies between its adherents. You only have to be slightly familiar with history, not even church history, to realize the difficulty of Christians trying to maintain unity. Acts chapter 15, the powerful team of Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem, because a division is opening up in this early church. It's a division between the Jewish Christians and the division and the Gentile Christians. And so Paul and Barnabas and a number of other people, James and Peter, they sort of all descend in Acts chapter 15 on Jerusalem. And it's sometimes referred to as the, the first church council. And they're trying to keep these two groups who otherwise would be divided Uh, trying to keep them unified. And they try to patch things up, and it seems to work for a little bit. But essentially, on the walk home, Paul and Barnabas themselves get into a discussion, and the discussion becomes so heated that they have to divide. So they went to try to maintain some kind of unity in the church, and as they left, they couldn't agree on something, and so they split up and they formed two different missionary teams. And so... It seems to go in church history. You fast forward to the year 1054. That's the official date given for the split between the Eastern Church or the Orthodox Church and the Western Church or the Catholic Church. In 1378 was the Great Papal Schism. And that was when the Catholic Church divided into two for some time, and they actually had two popes. One was ruling in Rome, one was ruling in France. 1517, the Protestant Reformation, and the Catholics and the Protestants split apart. 
but even the Protestants themselves could not stay together. And they split into different groups, some over geography, some over power, some over communion or what kind of relationship the state should have with the church. In the late late 1500s, the same tension was boiling up in England and the Church of England was splitting into three different groups. There was a group of people called the conformists and they would basically wanted just to stay in the church and have it just as it was. And then there was another group called the Puritans who wanted to stay in the church, but they wanted to reform or purify the church. And then there was a third group that wanted to separate themselves altogether away from the church and sort of get a fresh start. And their very creative name was the Separatist. And one little band of Separatists in 1620 decided they wanted to get out of England. They wanted to get out of old England and set sail for a new country called New England. And they would establish themselves now as a a new identity. And so they got on a boat called the Mayflower. And you will not be surprised to find out that it didn't take long before the separatists had to separate from each other. Which is one of the reasons Providence, Rhode Island was established as a city. In the year 1000, just try to imagine this. In the year 1000, there was essentially one main branch of Christianity. In the year 1500, there were really two main branches of Christianity. Today, it's hard to get a number on how many different denominations or Christian sects there might be, but one report put the number at 35,000. And so whatever the reasons for division, and I think there's some good reasons for it, and there, I think there are actually some good things you might be able to find out of that, I think it's all safe, we can all safely say that we don't have a good track record when it comes to unity. And so this morning I'm beginning a new series of messages aimed at preparing us to move into a new building. And when we move into a new building, it's going to open up all kinds of new opportunities for ministry and it's going to open up all kinds of opportunities for challenges. And I'm assuming, just like the early church in Acts, as the ministry expands, so do the issues that they have to face. The early church couldn't have known some of the things that they were going to face. But suddenly this whole new group of people called the Gentiles are are now numerically overwhelming the Jewish Christians. And what do we do with their customs? What do we do with their habits? And so they have to try to answer those. And you see some of those just beginning to get answered in the book of Acts. And so as we move into a new building, a whole new group of people may be coming to Christ Community Church. And they may have questions that we're not really right now prepared to answer. And so we have to be ready for the challenges that are ahead of us. And I want to do that this morning in part by looking at Philippians chapter 1 and these few verses And remind us that we are built for unity. But we are not built for uniformity. There's two different things. We're built for unity, but we're not built for uniformity. 
As we look at the passage in uh, Philippians, it's helpful to have this little uh, backdrop. You might remember from Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul is now on a second missionary journey, and he's wandering around in what is now Turkey. And he's on the western side of Turkey, and this Jewish rabbi, Paul, who's been transformed by the gospel, has a vision one night of a man saying, please come to Greece and preach the gospel. And so the next morning, Paul and his friends set sail, and the first city they land in is a city called Philippi. It's one of the leading cities in an area of Greece called Macedonia. And so he enters into the city, and it's very interesting in Acts, this fascinating account in Acts 16, Paul tells you, or Luke, the writer of Acts, tells you who are the first three converts in the city. The first one is a a very well-known businesswoman named Lydia. The second one is a slave girl. And the third one is a Greek prison guard. And so if you can just imagine from its inception the, the, the unity that they had to have around the gospel, but they were not uniform themselves. Imagine going to the first Founders' Day picnic and getting a picture You have this relatively small, unattractive Jewish guy. You have a very well-dressed businesswoman and her family. You have a prison guard and his family. And then you have a little girl. That's the opening photo. That's the one that they put on the wall at the first church at Philippi. And said, this is how we got started. And so when we look at that church, we immediately see at its inception, it was not uniform. But something drew this diverse group of people, and they all had to say, well, we've got to look at one thing and make that the central thing, and that was the gospel. That was Jesus Christ. And so we see, when we open up this ver- these verses in chapter 1, Paul's talking to a church that has this as its, as its beginning. It brings to mind the verse in Galatians 3 that Paul writes, In Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. Now, one of the reasons Paul wrote the letter was to encourage this group who was going to immediately begin to feel the forces of division. Paul understood this. He had been involved with it himself at a number of other places. And he understands that when this church forms, one of the first things it's going to feel are forces or powers or people that want to come up and divide and conquer. And so he's aware of that. And so he's encouraging his people in these few verses. And look at some of the phrases he uses. Stand firm. Stand firm. It's a, it's, a, it's a soldier's term. It's you're, you're, you're taking some ground here and we don't want you to budge. We don't want you to move back. Something's happened to you. Something is powerfully at work in you and that's the gospel. And we don't want anything to, to make you move away from the gospel. You've got to stand there and you can feel Paul sort of coming in behind his troops, coming in behind this little church that just his flame is just beginning to rise and say, keep going, just keep standing firm. I understand there are all kinds of forces that would want to divide this little group, but please just stay your ground. 
And then he uses, he switches his metaphor in this phrase, strive side by side. He switches from a, a soldier's term to an athletic term. People in Greece would understand athletics like the Olympics. And he's saying, you know, when you get on an athletic team, you all may have a different assignment. But in order to win, you have to act as one man. In the NIV, it's, it doesn't say strive by side, striving side by side. It says contending as one man. If you're going to watch the football game today, to be sure the team that's going to win is the team that when the ball is snapped, all 11 players act as if they're acting like one person. It's not 11 individuals out there. It's 11 individuals who are coming together to run one play. And they may have different assignments, but they're all firing off the ball like one man. They're contending as one man. And so Paul is encouraging them with this athletic term saying, you're a team. I I know you're very diverse in your gifts and your talents, but you're just running one play. And it's all about what Christ has done in your life. And so let's keep our eye on that play. And the most critical thing, and you see it when you read through the whole chapter, is what the new church is standing firm for, or striving for. And he really draws your attention to it. You cannot possibly miss it by reading this opening chapter. What's the one thing we've just got to have? Verse 5. I'm thankful for your partnership in the gospel. Verse 12, you are sharing with me the grace of the gospel. Verse 12, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Verse 16, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Verse 27 again, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. You you see, the gospel is right at the center. And if we ever lose that as our center, then we're certain to become quickly and easily divided. Now, why is it that the gospel is such a unifying factor? I mean, there's lots of things people can get together around and be sort of coalesced around, but why is it the gospel has such a unifying power amongst people who are a prison guard or a successful businesswoman or a Jewish rabbi or a slave girl? What's the element about the gospel that can bring those kinds of people together? It's because the, the cross is the great equalizer in the human race. You see, when, when you come to the cross, you're saying, I, I can't do it. I cannot save myself. And it doesn't matter who I am or where I live or what color of skin I have or whether I'm male or female or whether I'm a slave or a free person. I cannot save myself. I need some outside help. And so when we come to the cross, we're all on level ground. Nobody has an advantage. 
Nobody is disadvantaged when you come to the cross. And that's what is so unifying about it. Several summers ago, we went on a mission trip to Haiti. And I preached in the church there in Messiae from Mark chapter 5. And I zeroed in on these two conversations that Jesus had with these two people. One was an unnamed, bleeding woman. Remember the woman who had constantly tried to invest in things that would make her better, and she just never got better, and she kept getting worse, and she just coming to touch the hem of Jesus' robe. And she doesn't have a name. You don't know who she is. She's a poor woman without a name. And in the same story, wrapped together, is a man named Jairus, a very wealthy man who, oddly enough, is named in the story. Everybody knows his name in town. He has power. He has influence. But they're both coming to Jesus saying, there's something happening that's outside of our control and we have to have you. And he's saying, yes, and you don't even realize how much you have to have me. I've got to be at the very center of your life, whether you have no name or whether you have a great name. You both have a great need for me and me alone. And whether you come with something or you come with nothing, that doesn't matter. What matters is if all eyes are on me. You have to keep your eyes on me, not on the things in this world. And when I finished the sermon, Charles Amesey, the pastor there, came up to me and gave me a big hug and said, what an important sermon that was for me to deliver to his people. And I asked Charles, uh, why, why was that so important? I mean, I'm thankful he's not going to come and kick me in the shins and say, boy, I'm sure you could have done better than that. But he said, Paul, it's important for the Haitian people to hear you say that status in this world is no advantage in God's kingdom. It's, it's Paul... You don't realize how important it is for somebody like you to stand up and say, whatever status you have in this world is no advantage in God's kingdom. We both need Jesus. And so whether you're Haitian or American, whether you're black or you're white, whether you live in poverty that you can't imagine or wealth that you can't appreciate. There's no advantage when you come to the cross. And there's no disadvantage. Every person comes and it's the same level ground. Everybody needs a Savior. And so Paul is just reminding the church, that the gospel is the unifying factor, that they're, they're going to have to work for it. There's going to be some striving side by side. There's going to be some need to, to stand firm for the gospel. And in order for the church to remain unified, the church is going to have to make the gospel preeminent over other things. 
It's going to have to constantly lift up the gospel. It's going to have to constantly remind the people of the gospel. Because other things quickly come in between that. I want to borrow a picture that I heard expressed earlier this week. Imagine a group of people standing at the cross. They've all come to the cross and they all understand they need Christ. But, but if they want to maintain unity, they, they all, they, together, all of them have to, have to put one hand on the cross. I mean, they may have another hand free and they can do other things, but preeminently, they're all focused on the cross as the preeminent thing. We've got a, 11 different players who are all doing something a little different, but they're all running one play. And that play is the gospel. And I may have a little bit different talent than you have, but we're just preeminently pushing the gospel up as this is the preeminent thing. If you don't do that, if you don't put your one hand on the cross, if you don't say, this is... This is all that matters to us. If we lose this, we're losing everything else. If you don't do that, and you have a group of people standing around the cross, and they don't have one hand on the cross, then what happens is they quickly join hands together. And they join in little circles around the cross. And you quickly have disunity quicker than you can even imagine. All standing at the foot of the cross, but not preeminently lifting up the cross. They're saying, well, there are other things that are also important. And you're around the cross and you find the people who think what you think. Oh, gosh, we've got to have a prayer meeting. I mean, now that we understand what God has done, we've got to make sure we have a prayer meeting. And so who, who's for me? Who's with the prayer meeting group? Okay, let's all hold hands. Oh, we have got to reach the community. I mean, look, the, the Christ has come to us, and now we've got to be in the community. Who is with me? I mean, if we're, if we're not in the community, we might as well give up. Who's the community group? We have got to be to the nations that have never heard the gospel. Do you know there are people groups that don't have one single person that's a known Christian in that people group? We must be about that thing. So who's, a, who's with that group? What about the children? Nobody cares about the children. Who's the children group? Who wants to make up the dance team? The women's ministry? I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's just an endless number of very positive, very well-meaning things. But if you don't have one hand on the cross, and if you're not willing to make that one thing preeminent over every other thing that you may think is important, then inside of this very early church... Division quickly will come. And it will be divided over good things, but not preeminent things. The preeminent thing that Christ's community church must always have, and we'll have a lot of other things, but the preeminent thing is the gospel. And it is required of you and I to have one hand on the cross 
and say, we're going to make this thing preeminent. We may be doing something else. We may think it's important and we may want other people to join with us. That's all fine. But none of those are preeminent above the gospel. I'm very honored to serve at this church with the kind of talent that it has. I mean, I I will frequently get into conversations with other people in other churches, and I'll just say, I just really can't believe the talent pool at Christ Community Church and the things that get done that I don't have my hands on at all. I mean, I was talking yesterday to the lady, gosh, I can't remember her name, maybe it was Jennifer, because I think it was Jennifer, it certainly wasn't Jennifer, uh, the lady who was the manager at O'Charlie's. And she was just amazed at how many people came out for this pancake fundraiser. And the quality of people that she met and the kindness that she saw amongst the people, she was just overwhelmed by it. And then, you know, just a few minutes later, you go to the building and you're just overwhelmed by the energy and the passion that a number of people have had to to make this all fit together. And then you think about all the many people have given a dollar or a hundred thousand dollars to make it happen. It's just it's just stunning. If I sit with my staff and I look at them and think the the amount of stuff that you all are doing to serve the people at Christ Community Church in this community, it's overwhelming. And as happy as I am about all of those things, and as excited as I am about all of those gifts, if we don't have the gospel, if we don't hold on to the gospel, then we'll quickly just become a divided group of building people and ministry people and mission people. And it can happen quicker than we can even imagine. Now, you would think that this would be so easy to do. I mean, what's more preeminent than the gospel? I mean, how could you ever forget about the gospel and let something else sort of take a secondary issue to sidetrack you? But, oh, it's so easy. Philippians chapter 4, later in the same book, Paul is writing to two women in the church. And these two women have now somehow gotten sidetracked. These two women were standing, Paul says, they were side by side with me for the gospel. I know these women. We worked side by side right next to the Apostle Paul and we were all striving for the gospel. When the gun got fired, we we moved like a team. It was so wonderful to see, but, but something's happened now between these two women. And it's creating division. And Paul doesn't tell you what that is. But you just have this feeling that it's It's not about the gospel, it's about some other issue that one or both of these women have gotten their hands wrapped around and they've gotten both hands wrapped around them instead of one hand on the gospel, one hand on the cross. 
Can you imagine a small church where two very powerful women have both hands on something other than the gospel? What can happen inside that church? You see, you have to strive for it. It's not something that just happens. You have to think to yourself, is, is what really matters is the gospel? Or is it the gospel and the thing that I'm holding on to? In the course of the first seven years of Christ's community church, and probably because we're a new church, I've met a lot of really great people. And I think most of them very well-meaning people. But in the course of the hundreds of people that have sort of circulated through the doors at Christ Community, I have met some people, well-meaning, I think, well-intentioned, but they wanted to make someone or something more preeminent than the gospel. It was usually somehow covered over in some way, but it didn't take long before you, you could just discover, yeah, we got the gospel, that's great, but we've got to have, you know, Paul, you're just getting started, man. You really, you really want to do church right. And this is the kind of worship music you've got to have. This is the kind of children's ministry you've got to have. This is the kind of missions you've got to have. I mean, you've got a chance, Paul, to really launch it out on just the right foot if you just get these things in place. And I want to say to those people like the Apostle Paul said in Romans, I am not ashamed of what? The Gospel! The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of mankind, not the music ministry, not the ministry to children, not the ministry to the community. The gospel is what's the center. And if we don't have our hand on the gospel, then a well-meaning, well-equipped church with all kinds of resources can quickly dissolve into a hundred different schisms. Maybe 35,000. We don't have our hand on the gospel. And so we need to ask ourselves. You need to take a personal inventory. You've got certain gifts and talents that I don't have. We are not meant to be photocopies of each other. And some of you are going, good, I'm so glad. I just didn't want to look like you, Paul. I mean, that was really one of those prime concerns. We're not churning out photocopies of the pastor. We're not churning photocopies of the pastor's family. We're not churning out photocopies of people in history. We're not churning out photocopies of people in the Bible. You're not a photocopy. You're very uniquely and fearfully and wonderfully made. And you must be unique. To shine your light on the one thing that's unique above all things, the gospel. Not to bring glory to yourself, 
but to shine on the gospel. So please be unique. But here at Christ Community Church, we're running one play. It's the gospel. Now, what better time to have communion? We're all coming together. We have the the short, unattractive pastor. We have the rich, good-looking businesswoman. We have the young girl. We have the prison guard. We have all kinds of people who otherwise would not fit together and would not do things together. But we come to this one table and we're saying, this is what's preeminent. There are other things that are important, but this, this is the gospel. This is what we need to be reminded of. This is the table we're all looking at one head, Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, it it, it is so easy for me to get distracted from the gospel. And so I am, I am eternally grateful for this reminder to come back to say, this is the most important thing. This, this is the one thing all mankind must have. The bread of life, Jesus Christ. And so I pray for these people as they come together and they think and consider their, where their hands are. What, what they're holding on to, what's preeminent. As they sit and watch the diversity of people that come forward. That, that they would be proud of that. That they would support and encourage the diversity because it shines a, a greater light on the gospel. That we not try to be uniform, but we try to be together for the gospel. It's interesting that on the night Jesus was betrayed, the night when his 12 closest friends were all going to scatter in different directions and they were going to be as ununited as they ever were been, ever had been. That that's the night he says, this is my blood. This is my body. You come, take and eat. Be unified around the body and the blood of Christ. I'll ask the elders to come forward and then as the music plays and you're ready to come, you come as well.